This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Imagine where your life might go next, free of guilt, shame, or whatever it is you want to let go of, with lightness in your step and the wind under your wings. Oh, what sights you must see. May your wings carry you high and may you dance in the sky. The Eagle That Drank Hummingbird Nectar is a business novel that explores the theme of mindfulness and leadership. After the tragic death of his wife, tech CEO Aidan Perez finds himself adrift and searching for meaning when he discovers a mysterious manuscript that holds the key to unlocking timeless principles of leadership. He embarks on a journey that will change his life. As he hunts for the anonymous author, Aidan uncovers a powerful coincidence that helps him embrace the future and rediscover his passion for life. The Eagle That Drank Hummingbird Nectar is a fable for those who strive to lead exceptionally rewarding lives while creating extraordinarily adaptable organizations. The Eagle That Drank Hummingbird Nectar provides a five-step framework that can be used by individuals and leaders to guide their personal growth and development. It can be a helpful tool for those who are seeking to adapt and thrive in a constantly changing world. Valeria interviews Anis Haddad, He is the author of The Eagle That Drank Hummingbird Nectar, a novel about personal transformation in business leaders. Anise is a seasoned executive coach with a unique perspective on the challenges and opportunities facing today's leaders. He was a successful international tech CEO who discovered that he liked people more than computers, which led to a life reinvention at 50. Anise is a global nomad, born in Texas, but always on the move. He has spent far more years abroad than in the U.S. and speaks fluent English and French. His coaching philosophy centers around the belief that change, transformation, and reinvention give individuals the opportunity to grow and expand the definition of who they are so they can be free to create the life they want. Anise lives in Singapore with his wife and two stepchildren. Meet Anise at anise.com. Here's the interview with Anise Haddad. In your own words, who is Anise Haddad? Wow, I love that question. Um, So, uh, I'm a global nomad who loves daily routines and dreads moving. Um, I'm a former tech CEO who discovered late in life that he likes people more than computers, which sent me in a completely different career direction. I'm a husband, father of three grown children, a grandfather, and a stepfather to two teenagers, and I'm still baffled by teens after all these years. So I guess I'm a, I'm a work in progress. We're often trying to get to a destination, don't we, Anise? We wanted to, like I remember trying to, in life, throughout my life, trying to be happy. I wanted to be happy. And that's what yeah. we all want. I imagined a place, like a moment in time where I would be happy forever. <laughs> that was the goal. And now everything changed. It's not even about happiness anymore. What would you say it's about now? Ah, clarity. It's just seeing reality the way it is, mm. being more open and accepting of everything that's in front of me, <laughs> everything, without exceptions, anything. I usually make a distinction between two words when happiness comes up. Um, happiness feels like it comes from external events and circumstances. Then there's another word, joyfulness, which is more internal. 
And I think that might there possibly that's what you're touching on when you're when you have clarity and you're focusing internally. I hear joyfulness in your voice yeah. in any case. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. Thank you. That's very subtle, but you, you picked that up. Yes. You know, remember when I got into this, actually doing everything, it started seven years ago. The podcast is about three years old, but I remember kind of going through this uh, very tough time with confusion, not knowing what life was about, what I was about, and you know, who I was even. And this very deep search, I have been searching my entire life, but then I was depressed at that time. I, I remember having even suicidal thinking. And that's when that message came to me and said, I heard that clearly, you are already fit for joy because I was in the fitness industry at that time, being a fitness trainer and competitor. So that kind of brought me down to earth in a sense, and that, that grounded me. I'm already what I'm looking for. I know yeah. this has been said by so many philosophers and spiritual teachers, but it's so true, isn't it, Anis? Yeah. And I love that that's, the, that's part of the name of your, your business. Yes, Fit for Joy, right. And you started out immediately talking about happiness, and it really, it's the joy behind it. Yes, <laughs> yes. And it really sounds like this is the goal, isn't it? When, what do you think of when it comes to everything that you have learned in your life, everything that has been said that you have heard? I mean, there's so many things. I know you can't remember them all now, but <laughs> being who you are today, doing what you do today, after all this is said and done, what do you think is the was the goal of all this when we're about to leave the body, lose the body? What comes to mind when that question is presented to your mind? Oh, I think, wow, wow what a great question. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just go really, really deep. I think... Um, for for me, whenever that question kind of comes up, purpose and all that, there's a there's a there's an element. So and this comes up a lot in my coaching, in my executive coaching. Uh, what's my purpose as an individual? What's our purpose as a team or an organization? And I think the link to what you're describing right now, there there, there there's an attitude to purpose that looks at it as being external, kind of like I was speaking about happiness a little bit ago, that purpose, I have one purpose in life, I need to find it, where is it, um, what kind of signs can I see that'll tell me what my purpose is, and then there's another attitude, another mindset is I'll, I'll make up my purpose at any time as I go, and my purpose for this decade might not be the same as next decade, my purpose for these five years might not be the same. And then it comes down to maybe it's just to enjoy life. Maybe it's just to be alive and just to experience what it is to be living and to be aging and to be growing and to struggle and to be around people who love. It feels more and more that purpose is, is it comes closer to just enjoying the joy of the moment. Mm, wow. See, that's a beautiful answer that it's really a challenging one for the mind to grasp that it's almost like letting go of the future of the next moment yeah wow that's a tough one isn't it <laughs> for the yeah. mind it, and so what it does by freeing up them and and again i've to just to keep it in context my most of my work is very very with very very pragmatic grounded people in business so these kinds of discussions do come up. They don't go very deep spiritually. However, what, it, what these kinds of discussions do do is by freeing up the mind allows the person to invent who they want to be right now or who they want to be next, whether personally, professionally, as a team, as an organization. So if, the word you just use, freeing up, is a very powerful um, discovery for a lot of people. You mentioned spirituality. That's one of my favorite uh, topics. And <laughs> not that I, I see everything as spiritual anyway, but we have this label, which is a, I mean, a very interesting topic. It's a chapter in, a, in your book, The Ego That Drank Hummingbird Nectar, a novel about personal transformation in business and leaders. I want to plug this in. 
So this is the, the title of your book, which you have already another question on top of the other question I had. Going back to the question about spirituality, it's an open question. What is your idea of spirituality, Anis, as of now? Um, so I have, I, so I have a deep appreciation for the infinite, um, um, manifestations of spirituality or the infinite ways of, ex of experiencing spirituality. Um, and people have different paths and different backgrounds that it's a, it's a, It's an, it's an orchestra, a cacophonic orchestra. So I have a deep appreciation for that. In my work, um, the, the way I touch on it, uh, so everything in my book is, I never mention mindfulness or mindful leadership, but the book is about mindful leadership, essentially. Um, the, spiritually, the spirituality behind that is um, learning to let go so that new things can come in and live life more in flow um, and, and, and we can build our teams and organizations more in flow. So I'll, I'll come to spirituality from that angle and I don't go further than that. Um, uh, although, personally, I do have a much bigger view of that. However, for me, for me, this business work, leadership, just as you said a moment ago, everything is spiritual anyway. So you can come at leadership as a way to build yourself personally. And um, mindful leadership is more difficult than sitting in a cave and meditating. Yeah. Mm. Um, so it can be very challenging. It can be a very, very rich way to develop oneself. Yeah, it very much sounds like it. How would you describe what a leader is, or true leader, let me put that way. I know you don't want to say the word mindful. Um, so it's quite a simple definition. It's someone who people choose to follow. Um, if, if you're a manager and people follow your, your, um, your commands, um, they're doing it because of your role, your rank, your title, a leader, people follow a leader because they choose to. So it doesn't need to be a hierarchical position. It can be anyone. That's, that's kind of the basic, simplest definition. It's someone who people choose to follow. They don't have to follow. Right. Yeah. It's almost like becoming inspired by them, yeah. what they say, what they do, and then... Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love that. How they show up, what their presence is, what their vision is, Um And you choose it for whatever personal reasons you have of choosing to follow that person. That makes a person leader, in my opinion. You mentioned earlier, which I love that answer about the purpose of life, if there is one, or the goal behind all this would be to enjoy each moment. Basically, to me, it translates into being present and accepting, yeah. open. Would you say that this is also... The goal when, when people say, I wanted to become my best self, I wanted to explore my full potential. Is that what they, they mean by that or something else? Yeah, it could. That would make sense to me. Yeah. You're, yeah. And, 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 and quite often you just, well, in coaching, quite often you just need to ask someone, what does that mean to you? Yeah, right. Yeah. And it's their definition that's most important, is more important than my own definition. It's how they see what that means. That sounds very much like somebody who is guiding somebody else to uncover their own truth and to live the life that they want to live. So we don't want, as we talked off record briefly, about not telling others what to do, but exactly. leaving everything that we say open. Now... I don't, I, my work is not in a clinical environment, so I don't work with people who are suffering from physical trauma and things like that. So everything that I say is really from a different space. But um, what I see is that that is often, if, so I come from an angle that, that the person is extremely wise already and they already know what's best for themselves. And it, my role is to simply have them explore that and, and find it for themselves. 
That sounds wonderful. You know, I love that. And I think that's possible in the work that I do because I'm not dealing with clinical environments. Of course, I understand that psychologists could not do that. Yeah, although yeah. they do explore the inner inner landscape of their clients, but it's often structured. Well, there's a purpose behind it. Would it would need to be, yes. Yeah, in that case. Another open question is the idea of success. That's another broad word and concept. So I'll ask you two questions in one. What is your idea of success and what are some of the misconceptions most people have or you have had about success? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, yeah, so I, I see the definition of success changing, um, growing, that there, there, there are, there are, there are projects and dreams and goals that can be defined in terms of success. Um, trying to make it more general becomes difficult. And I think, I think where people often find trouble and it comes up often in a very poignant way um, at a at a crossing of a decade, for example, someone in their late 40s about to turn 50 or beginning of 50s, um, where they suddenly realize that the definition of success that they've had wasn't really their own. Um, I think that's a, that's a common one that flares up. Um, and, and, and when people do get a chance to look at it, quite often they're able to change how they're looking at that and, and then redefine success. Do you recall some of the ideas you had, the misconceptions you had personally about what success should look like or be like? So when I was running my company in France, I, I, I built a payment software company from scratch in the south of France and because that's where I lived at the time and I couldn't find any other job. So I became an entrepreneur, built a company, grew it to... 30 countries with my clients or banks all around the world. Uh, I was uh, 30 when I started. I sold it. Uh, the company was sold when I was 47. Um, and success at that time was maximizing the value of the company, um, maximizing my own wealth, because it felt like I only had one shot. Um, and that if I didn't succeed at this shot, then, uh, everything else is done. So there was a lot of fear involved. Um, I didn't realize that I had lots of other stuff in it. So that was, I sold the company, the company was sold in 2007. That was, uh, that was, uh, 15, 16 years ago. Um, so I, I think that definition of success was defined, um, Without a whole lot of thought, it was simply applying what success is norm success normally looks like, and you mix into that a fear of failing. Yeah, <laughs> this is the only shot. So you put all yeah. that together, yeah. and it doesn't make for a very healthy definition. That's for sure. Yes, I can relate to that in a way, and of course, from a, a different perspective, being a woman and working in a fitness yes. industry and trying to be as fit as I could, so I, oh, I could look so successful. <laughs> yeah. That was so painful. <laughs> it's very painful. I guess this is a good time to ask you about the transition. Like, what are you doing now? How did you come to do what you're doing today from tech CEO to a executive coach? And actually, you're more than that, Anissa. Yeah, executive coach, and you're also the global nomad. Um. So the global no wow yeah there's so much packed into that that I can unfold with yeah. so well. <laughs> yeah. um, should I talk about global nomad really quick get yes, that out of the way please okay. yes yes um, and you and people listening might wonder about my name usually people do they go wow that name doesn't go with that accent uh, uh, all kinds of things nice. so um, global nomad. I think I'm a reluctant global nomad. I was born <laughs> yeah. in Texas. My mother and her family are from Texas. My father's from Iraq. So my name is Arabic. Um, and by the time I was 21, I had lived half my life in the U.S. and half my life in a few years in, in Iraq, a few years in uh, North Africa, 
where I learned French in an expat, French expat school. So um, as an adult, I've lived 20 years in France. I've been in Singapore 16 years. So global nomad, I think it's just because I was, I, I grew up early on surrounded by, uh, I grew up being a minority and I'm most comfortable being a minority. Um, anyway, that's global nomad. Yes. <laughs> uh, how, how I went from tech CEO to what I do today. Um, after, after the company was sold, it was very easy to be a mentor for other, other entrepreneurs that are earlier in their careers. And the mentoring pretty quickly started turning into coaching. Um, and I became certified as a coach. I learned all the distinctions and the things that I was doing that weren't really effective in coaching. Uh, became a leadership facilitator. So I spend maybe two-thirds of my time running workshops uh, for top teams, CEOs and their teams, and um, and coaching individually. Uh, so I, the transition was uh, gradual. I write about it in my – actually, my book, my book has a fictionalized account of that transition that I went to just as I was turning 50. Um, it's fictionalized, so there maybe 20, 30% of the anecdotes are actually things that happened to me, but most of it is fictionalized, so it allowed me to kind of um, compress what, what was a longer period for me. I compressed it into several months that the protagonist uh, experiences, so it was a way to, a way to look at that transition and, and distill the learnings from it. I was about to ask about the story a little bit, but yeah, of course, that's the story of your life. And then I asked you off record about the why fiction and not nonfiction. Mm, I would love yeah. to, yeah, for the audience to hear that too, Anis, please. So the first, uh, I, a few years ago, I had written uh, a book length manuscript uh, basically distilling what I've learned in the coaching of the last 15 years and uh, tips and things like that. But it just felt so boring and bland. Um, and, and because I've been in a journey of, of learning to help people find their own wisdom and knowledge rather than telling them, I switched to fiction so that it could be a story rather than uh, a how-to book. Um, and, and as we were talking a little bit ago, uh, earlier, the, it was a, it was, it was, it was a, it was my own self-transformation journey because it was, I had to begin noticing the very subtle teacher voice in my head and then begin noticing how it comes out, how it tries to, yeah. how it tries to disguise itself <laughs> as a different voice. Yeah, uh, true. And then rec learn to recognize, uh, oh, there you are. And then uh, find different ways of uh, of communicating that are not telling. It, it's very challenging. So writing fiction for me was an exercise in that, and 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 hopefully it's produced something that's um, more engaging and more interesting than just a bunch of how tos. Yes, and very much did. It's incredible to me. That's the work of creativity. I do see creativity as inner freedom. It's coming from a place of mm. freedom. It really, it really does. And in your book, that's what it came across. Like, oh, this is coming from a place of being free. Oh, good. Yeah, the freeing place. So it really came across that way, Anis. So I thank you for that because we don't see that often. And then because I just heard you saying that off record just now again. And then what comes to mind is, why do you think we have this this desire to tell people what to do. Because oh. I catch myself doing that with my husband yeah. a lot of times. <laughs> Telling on myself. <laughs> this is, so um, part of the book is on this. I think that well, it's the, actually the final chapter of the book is on this topic. Um, our, our value comes from a mix of the knowledge that we acquire, the experience that we acquire over the years, the authority that comes with that knowledge and experience. And in our work lives, a vast majority of executives up until they get to very, very senior levels, their value comes from 
having answers, telling people what to do. And the discovery here is that there is even more value in the questions rather than the answers. Um, there's a quote I love. I don't think it made it into my book uh, by Julio Olala, who's the founder of Ontological Coaching, a Brazilian man who founded Ontological Coaching. And he has a quote, um, knowledge is a love affair with answers. Wisdom is a love affair with questions. And that that just that that just has has moved me the last ten years. It's 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 falling out of love with answers, falling in questions, not having answers. Ah, not having the answers, right? And that's ah. scary. That's scary. So we want to have the if we feel if we feel we're telling someone what to do, we feel useful. Kind of pause and reflect about this just now. Yeah, that is true. In my case. What I see is that when I'm trying to kind of communicate certain messages to my husband, I say him because I'm very, we're very intimate, so I would love to kind of tell everything you know, that comes to my mind, what I'm thinking and how I'm thinking about certain things to him. But then I, I notice that he's not open or not ready, or maybe I'm not communicating properly or I'm telling him what to do, <laughs> probably. <laughs> It doesn't really come across right, but the intention is uh, so we can come from that place of freedom again. So to create more freedom, because I see him stressed out a lot of times, concerned with finances and uh, his own life, because we moved from one state to another and then he feels out of place. And then I'm trying to kind of uh, all the the wisdom through questioning and to listening that I learned from you, amazing people here, and reading and doing my own practices, spiritual practices. So I try to pass on to him, but then I feel like it doesn't really work. So I'm just wondering if, even if we are trying, telling people what to do, it's coming across that way. Isn't it the intention that matters? <laughs> Maybe I'm trying to come up with an excuse here <laughs> for telling people what to do. <laughs> right. So it's very hard. What you're describing is very hard. Right. Um, and the so you would know. I mean, I think I, I think you realize that as soon as you said that, isn't it the intention that matters? I think you, you're catching yourself there. Um, yeah, the intention matters a lot, but really what matters most is how people perceive it. So it's the it's the it's the impact that it has is more important than the intention. And that's uh that's big in conflict resolution and everything, where someone says, Yeah, but my intention is this, but if you <laughs> yes. can stay in if you can stay in, I see that this is the impact that I've had and I apologize for that. There's um a shift to impact rather than intention. That aside, what you're describing is very, very hard. And it's a it it could be a lifelong learning for most of us. Is how do I how do I contribute to others and how how am I still valuable to others even though I'm not telling them what to do and I'm, I'm helping them instead finding what they want. Or maybe I'm not even helping. Maybe there's just something in my presence that's enough. It's like Brene Brown, uh, all of her stuff on empathy. It's, it, 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 I can't remember the words. Rarely does a response um, improve a situation. What improves a situation is just being there for the person. So, but that's hard to learn. That's very it hard. Is. It is because we are conditioned to always do something to get results or, or to feel yeah. valued. It's about actions, about always being giving something. And sometimes yeah. it's we already the present itself for the gift, yes. right? Ourselves. It is hard to remember that, but when you do remember, that's there is beauty in that. Just sitting there. There's a lot of my work is just being a present present empathetic listener, someone who is there listening, um, and then the person discovers their truth as they speak. Um, they discover what is real for them. They discover their own wisdom. So it takes uh, it takes practice to say, okay, I'm going to bite my tongue. I don't mm -hmm, should yeah. 
don't need to be saying anything right now. And especially when it comes to intimate relationships, then it's it, yeah, it must be more even more challenging. Is that the case? And is you I, find? Yeah, I think it's yeah. more challenging. However, the stakes are higher. So quite often, people's personal, people's professional transformation, I often see, is linked to a personal transformation. Um, there's a story I tell in my book about a lady who um, who has had frayed relationships with her teenage daughter uh, in the book, and she this this lady is a is a top executive at her company, and she wants to have more empathy for her team because she has too high turnover with her team, but she decides she wants to start with her daughter at home first, who's going through depression. And so she uses executive kind of uh, tools um, and goes home. She says, uh, uh, how would you rate me as a mother? She wants a rating the way you would do at work. And the daughter says, you're my mom. I couldn't rate you as a mom. But if you asked me to rate you as a cook, I'd give you a zero. So she, the lady then digests that. She gets angry at first because she said, why do I need to cook? I don't, my husband doesn't need to cook. And nobody demanding that. But then she discovers that the reason that her daughter wants that is because she's still grieving the death of her grandmother with whom she used to cook. So, so the lady, the executive, started cooking, and they started cooking together. And this was a real coaching session I had a few years ago with a CFO of a company in India. And that, that link, if we can be empathetic and compassionate at home and we can listen to people in a, in a deeper way, then our work life improves So there's, because the stakes are high at home. So we're willing to take that risk. Well, I love that, Anis. What a beautiful message. Yeah, if we can all kind of start practicing that, it's not even start doing it because I know it's not easy. It might be, as you said, a lifetime. It, it might take a lifetime to really perfect that if there is such a thing. Yeah. But it is the practice of empathy, empathetic listening, just presence. It sounds very spiritual to me again, although I see everything as, as spiritual. <laughs> so I do love that these kinds of topics are, are quite big now in the business world at high senior levels. And it's not just about wellness. It's about creating um, more trusting teams, more engaged teams, more effective teams by by touching these human elements. Um I, it wasn't big when I was running my company. Um, it really grew over the last few years. And I think post-COVID has really, really taken off. So it is true what I hear over and over again, that there has been a shift in human consciousness, per se, that many of us are seeing life differently, ourselves, everything we do, yeah. the way we think, it's changing. That's wonderful to know. I don't often talk to people in the corporate kind of field. But you see, I don't separate anything because yeah. there's no, like, I think I, I mentioned that off record too, that we cannot leave ourselves home and then go to work. It doesn't make exactly. sense. We're one, we're one person. What happens, uh, the stuff that I'm struggling with at home probably appear in some way or another at work and vice versa. Another question I didn't ask you, I wanted to ask you earlier, I made a note here, just a brief question about Living overseas, doing all the traveling you have done, not just traveling, but actually living in different countries, what have you learned or what insights have you gained from those experiences? Um, I, so people, oh God, what insights were to even start with that? Yeah, right. Um, right. I've seen over the last 20, 30 years, um, people become a lot more similar culturally. Uh, we have the same, the same brands all over the world, pretty much the same way of thinking, the same um, entertainment, pretty much generally. There are cultural differences in a lot of places, but it's blurring out a bit. People are aware of other cultures and they're, they're becoming more aware of, uh, of their own. Um, 
I'm not painting that as like a hugely positive thing because it, there's still ways to find ways to fight each other as we can see everywhere in the world. You can get into battles with the people closest to you. Um, but there is a, there is a, there is kind of a, um, I'm, I'm not going to say emerging together or homogenizing. There is an awareness of, of differences and a, a greater acceptance of differences compared to uh, 20, 30 years ago. Um, don't know where to go with that question. It's very big. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure there's so much more. There's yeah. something I talk about in the book is third culture kids. And, and I think this might touch a little bit of what you're talking, what you're, what you're asking. Um, third culture kids, if, have you heard that term before? No, I had never heard. No, no. So it's, uh, it's a term that describes uh, children who grow up in a different culture from the culture of their parents. Ah, right, right. Um, and in the past, when I was a kid, it was primarily expats. The, the name existed. Historically, we can find record of it in the 50s, 60s. But it wasn't common, so I thought I was weird when I was growing up. I didn't know about my country, who am I, and all that. Um, now there's a huge number of people that are like that, and, and they have more in common with each other than with their particular mix of, uh, of culture. For example, uh, the child of a Japanese executive married to a German woman will have more in, com more in common with a, um, a child of a F Filipino family that has lived all of his life in Dubai and Singapore and uh, Boston, for example. They've lived in completely different cultures, different places. Their backgrounds are different, but their mindsets are quite similar because they navigate, they navigate in different waters. Um, Using the, the 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 another another Julio Lala ontological uh, thing, the idea that a fish doesn't recognize the water that they're in. Um, in the same way, if you're always in the same culture, you don't recognize culture around you. Uh, it's when you swim in different waters you start to notice your culture, their cultures, and if that has your formation in in your early years, then you have a very different view. It's more malleable. Or changing, it's less fixed. So uh, I see that as a big, big trend. Wow, and in life, it's very helpful, isn't it, to be flexible, adaptable. As we know, that's yeah. why the species we are here, right? Because yeah. we have adaptability. It's very important. And also, for me, it's the reduction of judgment. So we become yes. much less judgmental, and so we can connect with others easier. Yes. If we want to be judgmental, we can find a million ways to mm -hmm, do it, and yeah. we still do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it it does become a little it becomes a little easier to suspend judgment, I think. You see, that saddens me when I even kind of contemplate the this idea, this concept of judgment in, in a sense yeah. of the way people look. Yeah. I never understood that. I was born in Brazil and then I came here and yeah. then I saw this in, in the United States where I saw all these African-Americans. They were, I went to college and I saw everybody was separate. All the Hispanics, they were in one area and then the whites and then the African-Americans. And then, I mean, that kind of, I couldn't understand. It was just, yeah. <laughs> it didn't make any sense to me. Why are they so, I didn't even have... A concept in my mind to understand the reason why. So I just kind of thought it was natural. Oh, okay, maybe they're just friends. They just look very similar to me. They are yeah. all like similar looking friends. <laughs> How old were you when you first left Brazil? Oh, wow. I was 18, almost 19. Okay. I was really young. I'm 45 now. So I came here very young. I married to an American in Brazil. So I came uh -huh. here. I could never see. I could never discriminate. It's interesting when I think about these days. I see humans, because I see, it seems like I've been seeing the world as a spiritual, everything yeah. having this meaning or something. There's something behind everything. It's almost like, I know I see this person, but that's not all I see. Yes. There's a lot more behind this. 
So I guess that has been, it carried me throughout my life. And now it's like, oh, great. I found language even to express that because I've seen spiritual teachings like Vedanta. I follow a lot of yeah. um, those studies and philosophical thoughts on, on the nature of reality and all that. And then I see that they actually speak that way, that everything, it's not things, not, we're not dealing with objects here. There's this subjective reality behind everything, mm. all what it seems to be objects, <laughs> the microphone that I'm using now, you, <laughs> everything. Yeah. So I guess quantum physics too, I, I think that's what they say, that it's not just matter, everything's energy, everything. Mm. Yeah, that's how I've been seeing life. So judgment is a big one. It's something that I don't understand. And it saddens me when I, when I hear, I have heard, of course, some of my friends here and my family members, yeah. and then it, it's really, it saddens me. Because it doesn't make sense, and even the mind doesn't understand. Not the heart is sad, but then the mind also doesn't understand. Because I never, I was never really engaged with that idea. Yeah. But it exists, right? It's here. It's still here. It's interesting. Twenty-first century, uh, two thousand twenty-three, and we're still judging one another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, your your meditation, your mindfulness practice also would help and in um, kind of making that, making you more aware of some of the very subtle judgments you might have. So you're very mm. to that. That's pretty cool. That's it too. I'm very much aware of uh, the voices, right, that appears and that judgment. And then I, I'm very aware of them and I don't let them run the show, right? Yeah. There's part of that that is... Um, Part of that is extremely natural as human beings because we're judgment machines and it's just yeah, right. <laughs> evolutionarily speaking, if you can if you can judge someone as having bad intention in a very split tiny second, you have a better chance of staying alive. Mm, so yes. it came oh, to us right. because it's very, very useful. But then like so many things that have come to us through evolution, they can be abused and we can we can become addicted to them. Um, so I, I think there is an addiction. That's one of the chapters in the book, detaching from the illusion of self that you brought up. Oh my God. Yes. I love that chapter. Yes. Yes. And that's related to, there's a part of the notion of self that's extremely healthy because we need, if we have no ego, then we'll step into the street and, oh, I'm one (laughs) with this truck. And we do become (laughs) one with the truck because we just don't see it. But but then we become addicted to that separation, this sense of separation. So the the detaching from the illusion of self is to begin noticing all the ways that I create a sense of self that's distinct and then begin letting that go um, so that I can invite new stuff in. So Right. It's, it, it's a, I think it, I love the analogy of... Um, uh, addiction for a lot of things like this because it's a uh, it, it starts from a natural place um having a sense of separateness the baby develops so that they're not one with the mother and they are a different individual but then becoming addicted to that separateness and really overdoing it um mm, yes right i'm listening to you i'm trying to kind of uh, see how I see it, how I have been seeing. I guess it's not really judging the behavior. Yeah, I got myself in trouble many times, of course, because of that. Just <laughs> kind of be a lord. I was a lord to the, what's behind that human. It's just like beyond the, their behaviors, beyond their appearance, behind all that. Yeah. That was also attracted to me that that I would just kind of, kind of get myself in trouble. Yeah, being around humans who are not so nice. But that's what I, I have kind of learned to see myself, that was just kind of look into the world as this whole united kind of thing. It's, it's human. So if it is a human, then it's almost like that um, the idea some religious people talk about God. It's like the, mm. in the image of God. So everything is God. So I guess mm. that's how I used to see it without using those words and those labels, but it was just... There's something about humans or anything, animals and all plants and all that, that was not to be pushed away. Even yeah. if it was, it came to me somehow uh, in a harmful way, it was not to be pushed away. Yeah. Uh, but I guess what's, who knows, might be part of um, 
the path, right, that we get yeah, to uncover yeah. ourselves even more. Just by yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I would love to hear. Yeah, I have that chapter here in lots of notes, and I know I, would, I could talk to you forever. I would love for you to describe the five-step framework that is actually built in or, or embedded in your book too. And okay. as a coach, I know it's also as a coaching guide, right? I think you use in this. Yeah, there's a bit of it. Uh, a bit of it can be used for personal development, leadership development, coaching of oneself. Um, so this is a, so in the story, in the novel, the protagonist comes upon a manuscript, um, serendipitously comes upon a manuscript, uh, at a, at an Indian restaurant here in Singapore. The book is set in Singapore and it is based on this five step, um, self-transformation journey. Um, so the, my book, these are the five chapters of the book. Um, it is, there's a bit of, uh, um, the hero's journey. The first step is entering the path. Um, uh, I need to recognize that I'm on a, on a journey. I need to choose to step onto the journey, uh, before it can start. Um, and, and I may not choose and then I, that's fine. I don't go on the journey, but entering the path is, um, where the desire for change is bigger than the desire for the status quo. Um, second chapter is seeing into the beautiful abyss of the mind. This is to begin exploring some of the questions we're talking about, some of the paradoxes of being human, some of the paradoxes of having this really, complex and sophisticated brain where we create shortcuts that are that are judgment-based shortcuts and that work very well but then in other ways they backfire sometimes so um it's it's to begin noticing that that's how our minds work we've got these tremendous shortcuts and stuff but they can trip us up and then three chapters on letting go so chapter three um is uh, letting go of identities, letting go of labels, this uh, detaching from the illusion of self. Um, chapter four is relinquishing the lust for control. So it's, it's loosening my grip on control and, 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 and experiencing truly trusting others. And then the final chapter, embracing the joy of a lifelong beginner. Here it's about letting go of um, the authority and expertise that I've built up, the knowledge, authority, and expertise that I've built up over the years. And, and rather than holding on to them tightly, I learned to have a looser grip on them so that I can be a beginner again. It's a book that we need to kind of read many times, though. It's not, one time's not enough. <laughs> Hopefully enjoyably. <laughs> yes, right. It stopped me like the chapter, part three, Detaching from the Illusion of Self. That... It's just incredible how many times I just come in the middle of reading that chapter just stopped and, and I, I just caught myself looking at something like the wall or whatever was in front of me oh, wow. and kind of reflecting. And yeah, it's almost like hypnotized by it, by the message. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really beautiful, though, you know, the way you see reality, especially that part of the when you talk on and on about them detaching from the illusion of self. There's a passage that says, we love holding on to the person we used to be through warm, nostalgic memories, even if they are sometimes painful. Mm. The neutral ruts are familiar and comfortable. Jumping out of the ruts takes conscious effort. This is the beginning here, the message about holding on to what is warm and comfortable. We get ourselves very much in trouble by doing that, staying there, trying to find a place to stay. That was the idea I had about happiness that, or anything, just being in one place. And that, it, it, that's not what life is all about. Life as um, throughout the human experience, it's all about change. It's constantly mm. changing. So we can't really hold on to anything, including our own sense of self. Yeah. That's just, it's a powerful message. And then you talk about thoughts and beliefs. There's so much that you say here. I'm trying to pick up things that could connect with one another so it doesn't 
sound disconnected, but you say also something else about holding on. Instead of holding on to who we used to be, we can become who we want to be. That caught my attention too. And then something funny, it's a dialogue. You're talking to yourself, you to me. You say, I'm not Aiden. If I'm not my name, who am I? If I'm Ooh. not my ego, then what am I? I'm not my ego. And then you say, this wasn't on my list. I'm not the rabbit hole. Obviously, I dive in. And I was laughing here for a while <laughs> because you keep on and on asking questions like I'm not this, I'm not this. And then ended up like there's nothing left, but yeah. we know that we are not nothing. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. Yeah. It's, uh, this is a very old um uh, a very old Hindu practice called Niti Niti. Yes, yes. I am not this, I am not that. <laughs> yes. And I just adapted it here for a leadership kind of thing where <laughs> rather than I am not my body, I'm not my thoughts, and I'm not this and all that, um, it's going down the list of labels. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an American, I'm an expat in Singapore, I'm a former tech CEO, <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> And then practicing saying to yourself, I am not that, and just noticing part of the part of the mind goes wild, says, Of course I am. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then uh, and then as it relaxes, the brain starts to see that I have all these all this artificial stuff that's built around these labels and that starts to dissolve. So yeah, it's just all uh <laughs> <laughs> That's where it really crosses over into what you're calling spirituality. Yes. A... Yeah, very much. Yeah, And it's interesting that you say about the Hindu philosophy. That's exactly the studies I do, the practices that I engage in. So, mm. But in the end, you probably have read that too or know that then it's by eliminating everything one by one. And then we just kind of put everything back together in a sense of the, we are everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah. You see, without pushing away anything, nothing. And that's not easy to do. I think what this does for me, this exercise, um, it dissolves away the fake, the, no, it dissolves away the um, unnecessary baggage that I've built around each of the labels. For example, if I, when I say I'm not, I'm not a dad. I'm not a dad. I'm not a dad. Yeah. Obviously, I am. <laughs> yes. But then what starts to come up is my brain starts seeing that there are all of these things around the label dad that I've, that I've, that I've attached to that label. And maybe those things are not so useful. The responsibility of the father. I have images. I'm, I'm a little bit too young for it, but I have images of father knows best popping into my head. Fifties. Yeah. Um, and you start seeing those, you go, okay, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not dad, quote unquote, in that perspective. So you start to see even a label like dad that seems very simple has, has tons of baggage attached to it, individual baggage. We each have our stories around them. So I think that's where there's a lot of power in this is it, it just kind of lets go of some of those things. Yes. Loosens it all up. It's not becoming nothing, but it's kind of letting go of what's holding the part of us that's free. It always yeah. goes back to that. There's something yeah. here that's very open and very free. Yes. <laughs> so we want to, yeah. right? We want to utilize or kind of come from that place more often. Yeah, we're human. Uh, this is all yeah. there. So. <laughs> yeah, right. There's something else that you mentioned uh, in that section too. You say, I think you, yeah, you quoted a, a poet Muriel Rokizer. He said, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. <laughs> that mm. made me laugh too. And resonated true because, yeah, the belief systems we hold, uh, it's, there's so much of that around everything, mm. the labels that you just spoke of. So that caught my attention. And then you also mentioned that towards the end, you say, the way to reduce the suffering is to become more aware of the identities we adopt. You already you said that I'm trying to get the things that I wrote down here. I'm just repeating myself what he just said, but this caught my attention. You keep I'm, I'm very attracted to these things, this wisdom, because it might be 
for that reason, suffer unnecessary suffering. That's what it is. We are mm. we attach so many things. It's incredible, and we are not aware that um, there's something here that's detached from everything, and not in the sense of not being part of it. It's engaged, but it's not attached. That yeah. free part of us it engages with everything, dances with everything, but it's not attached to anything. Yeah. That's yep. what we fail to see a lot of times. It takes practice, doesn't it? And thank you for your work, uh, Anise. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. I loved this conversation. At this time, what do you feel is the world's greatest need? Ah, oh, loosening the, the, the world's <laughs> greatest yeah, need yeah. <laughs> is loosening grip on these things. I talk about identities, labels, control, authority and expertise and all that is loosening our grip on that so that we can flow. The change is happening so fast that if we don't learn to loosen our grip and, 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 and surf with the change, um, we're going to be, we're going to be completely smothered, yeah. completely drowned out. Yes. And I agree. That's the message that it's in your book. We have been talking today. It's so true. It's one that's very close to my heart too being flexible, being open. What three experiences you wish everyone to have before they lose the body, before they die? Experiencing being fully loved by someone without the condition of producing value, whatever, just just for being alive, experiencing that, knowing that feeling, um, <laughs> experiencing the, the, the mix of pain and joy of having that unconditional love for another person. And a third one, what would be a third one? Uh, what would be a third one? Um, experiencing gratitude for really, really tiny things. Um, if, if it's a cup of coffee that you're enjoying in the morning or whatever, or a cat playing outside, whatever it is, just, 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 just enjoying that moment of uh, being completely present. Um, yeah. That's a powerful message, isn't it? I hear that very often. But for some reason, hearing that from you, it kind of it kind of touched places that I didn't expect to touch. <laughs> oh, Maybe wow. because it's parts of me that um, I feel that they are not loved by oh, what God. they are. So the, it just came and wanted to cry. <laughs> it's amazing. It's interesting how... When we are open, right? And it's like, that's yeah. what I live for. Yeah. These things yeah. just come up. And yeah. uh, how incredible. Yeah, what a, to me, that's everything. Yeah, if we can all Beautiful. realize that, that we are enough. Mm. Even this, what we call human body, who knows what this is, it looks mm. like a body. But thank you for saying that. Thank you for asking. <laughs> think on that. Yeah. I, did, I hadn't thought about that before. <laughs> So I want to thank you from my heart for what you represent, for who you have become and everything that you're doing, all the, your work that to me is, um, is a work of, um, of a spiritual teacher. You kind of sound very much like a spiritual teacher, a therapist. There's something about your presence that's it's very profound and it's, um, and I know what it is, that empathic listening. You're very present to, well, to others. Thank you. It's so beautiful. Thank you for being you, Anis. Thank, thank you. you. And before we, we say goodbye for today, what is the best place to find more information about you and your book and your work? Anise.com, A-N-E-A-C-E.com. That's my website. Wonderful. I'll have the link on your podcast profile. And of course, I'll be sharing your message. Thank you again for your presence. Thank you. Thank you and we'll talk soon. Wonderful speaking with you. Beautiful. The same. Bye for now, Anise. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening. To learn more about Anis Haddad and his work, please visit anis.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.